1: Spring is my favourite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com.
2: Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, Or wherever you go to get your podcasts, or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance, and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number forty two in our series for two thousand twenty, and today's date is Friday, November the twentieth. First, I'll be talking to Bruce Tulgan over in the US, the founder and CEO of Rainmaker Thinking. Coach and management thinker of Tolkien will tell us how companies can rebrand themselves with smart recruiting and teach leadership. And I'll be talking to RMIT economist Jonathan Boymel about signs that the Australian property market might be picking up post-COVID. But now, let's talk to Bruce Tolkien.
0: in a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today.
2: Bruce Token, uh, you at Rainmaker Thinking have uh, got some advice for companies on how to brand themselves to retain their talent. Tell us about it. Well, what we've learned is, you know, some
0: organizations—it's so hard right now to attract and retain the best talent. Some organizations—they're—they're—they're uh, they're, they're trying to figure out, you know, how can we do more for everyone? Come to work whenever you feel like it, and bring your dog. But the problem is, that's not sustainable. Uh, And there's no way you can keep doing that in uh, in any environment uh, and continue to compete. So what our research shows is that high performance uh, is the most sustainable way. Uh, And what we've learned is that it's your leadership culture, it's your management culture. That is the way to brand yourself as an organization in a sustainable way. And too many organizations, uh, they have a leadership culture by default instead of a leadership culture by design. And as a result of that, uh, most organizations, their leaders, managers, and supervisors Uh, They're under-managing people. They're not providing enough support, guidance, and direction. And in today's environment, that is a really damaging culture to sustain. Uh, The problem is that it takes a huge amount of effort and energy uh, to move your culture towards strong, highly engaged leadership, high performance, and high rewards for everyone. Uh, but that 's what our research shows gives you a real strategic advantage
2: How does an organization actually develop much more focused management system? Yeah, I mean, look, we see
0: uh, organizations of all shapes and sizes. Uh, at different points in the journey the, the organizations I always point to are uh, military organizations, because, you know, when you talk to people in, in the military, they'll tell you, hey, look, you know, uh, we have plenty of extraordinary people, but we have a lot more ordinary people. It's just that we get extraordinary performance out of them all day, every day. And you say, oh, is that because it's an easy job? No. Uh, is it because you pay through the nose? Nope. Uh, You tell everybody, hey, come to work whenever you feel like it and bring your dog. Nope. Uh, What do they do? Well, of course, it's mission-driven work. But the other aspect of it is they have this leadership culture. Uh, People know, go work there, uh, and they're going to hold you to a high standard and help you meet it, Uh, that the leaders in this organization are going to be strong teachers and coaches, uh, that um, they're going to build you up and make you better. So uh, I always point to the military, not that I suggest that business leaders turn their organizations into military-style organizations, but because they're – even where they don't pay much, even where the job is dangerous, even where they have to hire uh, a lot of ordinary people, uh, they're able to get extraordinary performance out of people all day, every day, and they have low turnover among high performers. Why? Because they build a great leadership culture. Uh, And so, yeah, in the private sector, of course, there are a lot of organizations you can point to as well. But the truth is, you know, there are great organizations where there are managers who are failing and there are uh, organizations that struggle where there are great managers who set themselves apart. So what I always tell tell managers is don't wait for the organization to change. Here's what happens. If you're a weak hands-off manager, chances are it's not because you're trying to be weak. It's chances are it's because you think you don't have time to be a strong, highly engaged manager. The problem is, if you're not strong and highly engaged, problems occur that never had to occur. Problems get out of control that should have been solved easily. Resources are squandered. People go in the wrong direction for days, weeks, or months on end without even realizing it. And this is an environment that's very frustrating in which to work, especially in a fiercely competitive environment where everybody is balancing competing resources and... Uh, where where people are trying to succeed, that it's very hard to succeed in an environment where, where you're not getting that kind of support and guidance from managers.
2: Well, uh, with the military, people are told what to do and they're expected to follow certain paths. So, of course, it's very hands-on management. How would that translate into the private sector? Well, you know, the the truth is, of
0: course, you know, sometimes people will say to me, well, in the military, you can make people clean the latrine with their toothbrush, and that helps a lot. And you know what? It does help a lot. Um, But, you know, uh, we can make people do push-ups at 4 a.m. in the sand. That helps a lot, too. And by the way, push-ups are only good. They make everybody stronger. There's no downside to push-ups. But um, it's not just that. What they do is, you know, they're not barking orders at people. Uh, they have a culture where they teach everybody how to follow, and they have a culture where they don't put anyone in charge of anyone without teaching them how to lead. So a huge part of what works is the dialogue, not the push-ups. It's the coaching, not cleaning the latrine with the toothbrush. So what, what, you know, I'm not suggesting – Uh, that every aspect of military culture is what you want to bring into the private sector. What I'm saying is learn from how well the dialogue and the coaching works. Uh, Even in those very, very difficult situations. So, uh, you know, when people come into a new organization, we teach them a lot. One of the things we often don't teach them is the basics of followership, how to be a good citizen in this organization, how to prepare for meetings properly, how to prepare for one on one conversations with your immediate leader, manager, supervisor, how to keep your manager informed of what you're doing and make sure you're going in the right direction. And likewise. We put people in positions of supervisory responsibility without teaching them how to do the people work. Uh, We, you know, we put somebody uh, demonstrates a track record of success uh, in their job. They show they're responsible. They show they're not going anywhere. We give them more responsibility. And with responsibility comes people. We teach them how to do a little extra paperwork. Nobody ever teaches them how to do the people work. And one of the biggest differences in effective organizations is you don't put people in charge of other people without teaching them how to do the people work. And that doesn't mean barking orders at them. It does mean putting structure and substance into your leadership communication. It does mean making team huddles really good. It means making one-on-one conversations with your direct reports Uh, More effective, it means spelling out expectations, uh, making sure people understand, following up, following up, following up, providing ongoing feedback troubleshooting, problem solving, resource planning, recognizing and rewarding people when they go the extra mile and holding people accountable uh, when they're dragging their heels. And in the private sector, that doesn't mean push-ups in the sand, uh, but sometimes the best way to hold somebody accountable is to just make them look you in the eye and give you an account of their performance. When people are in the habit of ongoing structured dialogue, clarifying expectations up front, and then giving an account of their performance after the fact, Uh, this does a huge amount of uh, the work of helping people go in the right direction every step of the way. Uh, And when people have fewer unnecessary problems, they're happier. Uh, when, When problems are identified more quickly and solved, people are happier. When people have the resources they need or at least uh, 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 an acknowledgement that they're going to have to find a workaround, uh, they're happier. When people don't waste their time going in the wrong direction, they're happier.
2: Indeed, and uh, what that means, though, for the private sector is there is a danger when you just promote your best technicians into managers without giving them leadership training. That's exactly
0: right, and you know, uh, you know, sometimes people think, "Oh, well, leadership—that's just that other part of my job." That's the footnote. That's the part that doesn't matter. That's the part of my business card. But that's not my real job. My real job is uh, this thing over here. No, leadership is the thing that matters. And uh, we wouldn't put somebody uh, in charge of any other task, responsibility, or project without teaching them how to do it, right? But, But how many business leaders say people are our number one asset? Oh, so how do your managers manage them? Well, they just wing it. They just do what comes naturally to them. Uh, oh, how do they manage them? Oh, no rhyme or reason. It's just everyone has their own style. Imagine if you had accountants who said, oh yeah, I just use my own style to manage the money, right? Uh, well, what about the general ledger system? No, I don't like the general ledger system. I keep it all up here, see? Uh, you know, you'd say any other aspect of any other job, if we didn't teach people evidence-based best practices, it would be negligent. But when it comes to people... Uh, We let managers manage without ever teaching them the evidence-based best practices. And so uh, the consequences are, are significant. This is a problem that's hiding in plain
2: sight in every organization. Well, Bruce Tulgan, that is fascinating and valuable. And I'm sure everyone's going to pay special attention to what you've just said. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much for including me. And now let's talk to RMIT economist Jonathan Boymel. Well, Jonathan Boymel, we've had some really good figures. Housing approvals are up, and CoreLogic data shows that house prices are rising for the first time since the pandemic started.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So we've seen some um, data released this week from CoreLogic showing that the uh, the national average rose by about 0.4 percent in October. Um, And as you said, this is after you know several months of of declines. Um, during during the worst of the uh, of the pandemic, um, and every state saw gains, um, except um, as you would expect uh, Victoria, um, as a result of the impact of the the second the second lockdown. Uh, and of course, you know the question is how much how much higher can can prices can prices go? The Reserve Bank um, has cut the official interest rate to point 0.1%. Um, they've announced a, a very significant quantitative easing program uh, to lower borrowing rates for businesses and government and households to stimulate the economy. And yeah, the, quest, the question is, um, how much how much higher will, will house prices go? Are we seeing a, a bit of a, a bit of a rebound?
2: The question is, what does the Reserve Bank's rate cut do for the housing market?
3: Yeah, look, that, that that's that's a good question. I mean, obviously, the the, the, the first point is a question around the extent to which the commercial banks will 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 pass it on um, we've also seen a, an ease in, in, in lending standards which include the removal of the uh, the responsible lending obligations um, and that'll have some some impact but of course all of this is 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 being fueled by by household debt right and you would expect that there will come a point where households just won't be able to take on take on um, any more any more debt. I think we've also got to be conscious that you know very soon mortgage loan repayment holidays are going to come to an end um, and you will have some uh, mortgage stress households. Um, you will have investors um, seeking to exit um, the housing market um, potentially before the uh, the repayment holiday period comes comes to an end. Um, so I think that's that's a factor that we also want to also want to keep in mind. And there are those sort of medium to, to longer term structural issues around the declines in, in immigration, um, declines in natural population gro- growth, putting downward pressure on, on dwellings. Um, and I think that's, you know, in terms of the media, medium to, to longer term picture, I think that's, that's very, very important. We're going to see the slowest population growth um, in more than a century. We're going to see net outflows in terms of uh, overseas migration. So there'll be more people leaving Australia um, than there will be, be arriving. So all of these are going to sort of put real pressures on, on the demand side. As you said, on the supply side, we're seeing some changes. We know that we've got uh, an oversupply of units, um, and that, uh, that's been around for, for some time. And we'll see, obviously, additional selling pressure there. Um, there has been an undersupply of, of houses uh, but as you suggested, with, with construction activity picking up, we may see a change in the, uh, the balance uh, between demand, demand and supply. And again, um, that, may put, uh, that may put a lid on, on house pricing growth. Right? Over the last several years, we know there've been up to sort of 200,000 new dwellings um, added to housing supply. Uh, when we're looking at this year, we're down quite substantially, about 25% or so. Um, so the recent reported growth um, is welcome in terms of um, reducing reducing pressure on, on house prices.
2: Now, the issue is we've got a drop-off in migration and we're not going to get a rise in migration until next year when there's assuming there's a vaccine. And the growth in housing in Australia has always relied on high population growth. And we're getting a negative figure on that according to the budget.
3: Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, you know, that, that that's the... Uh, that's because of both the declining in the fertility rate um, and also uh, less migration to Australia, given, given the state of of international borders. You know, we've been talking about sort of what's going to happen at at the national level. I do think though, that we'll see some variation by state to state. Okay. So I think that we are likely to see uh, more support for price rises um, in some of the the smaller states uh, in the regional areas. Um, when it comes to uh, to, the, to the most populous states, which have been driven right by by, um, by net inflows, then I think um, we are going to see a, a continued softening of the housing market. So that's in Victoria, in New South Wales, um, particularly the capital cities, but certain regional markets um, I think will will remain quite quite healthy, um, and also some of the the smaller the smaller states. Um, so we are. I would expect to see significant um, variation um, at, a, at a more, at a more uh, state-based level.
2: That, that, there's a fair bit of patchiness there because Victoria has always depended on um, migration. I mean, absolutely, and New Victoria's South always,
3: Wales, New South Wales as well.
2: That's right, and so you know that's always driven the housing market there. But what's interesting is that the figures coming out of Canberra and Tasmania for housing are really interesting because they're going they're they're really healthy there
3: absolutely absolutely i know i have colleagues who have moved to tasmania recently and yeah i I would expect um that we are going to see some some rebalancing potentially after a period of you know of softness in some of those those other states i think we will see some price support in in those in those states, and also we're likely to see some variation by you know by dwelling type. So I think you know the the market for for units will continue to be very very soft um, going forward, particularly those in the you know in the in the uh, the CBD, the 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 inner city areas. Um, but again. The undersupply of, of housing that we've that we've seen recently, I think, uh, will continue to provide some, albeit limited, support for uh, for house prices, um, even in uh, markets like Melbourne and Melbourne and Sydney, which will bear the brunt of the um, net outflow of of population. Uh,
2: and of course, that has huge implications for the construction industry, doesn't it? And job creation there.
3: Absolutely. Absolutely. There has been, you know, considerable criticism about the extent to which um, we're relying on construction um, and infrastructure more, more generally to um, generate, uh, generate employment going forward. So there may need to be a, a relook at, uh, at what particular sectors of the economy um, we need to, uh, to support growth and jobs uh, going forward.
2: Well, that's going to be quite significant for the RBA, which has shifted from focusing on inflation to focusing on unemployment.
3: Absolutely, absolutely, and I think you know that that that's why um, they've uh, they've come along now and uh, announced the quantitative easing program of uh, you know probably about a hundred hundred billion dollars to get those medium term yields at a, at a level that that they want. But you know, as you know, the, you know, official interest rates are almost as low as as low as they they can go. So they'll be buying five to 10 year government bonds over the next six months. Um, And hopefully um, the stars will align, um, as you mentioned, in terms of a, you know, of a a vaccine. And we will see some improvements uh, over over that period.
2: Well, the RBA has ruled out any rate rises. They say inflation has to come back to the two to three percent target band. And they've ruled that out for the next three years, which means we're not going to have any rate rises for at least three years. And that has implications for anyone who wants to buy a property or invest in one
3: absolutely absolutely, and the concern then is around around uh, the the growth in 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 household debt, um, so the sustainability of that is is something something for for concern, but obviously you know in the in the very short run um, we 've got more pressing concerns in terms of the the impact of of unemployment, not just in terms of um, the potential for the economy to grow, but also the impact of unemployment on the, the health and well of, of, of households and families, individuals, uh, you know, um, over, over a period of time, which has been, uh, which has been incredibly challenging for many.
2: And I've noticed that uh, Moody's Investor services has warned of an increase in mortgage delinquencies
3: as a result of all of this. Yeah, look, ab- absolutely. I mean, I, I think, um, you know, once we see a, a, uh, and then to the mortgage loan repayment holidays, um, we're likely to see some increase in delinquencies. I don't think we're talking about a, a, a very significant increase enough to uh, move the market, but sure, I think there will be additional additional selling pressure um, as a result of mortgage stress um, over the next over the next six months. But probably not enough to move the
2: market. But uh, I mean, with with the issue of uh, the recession causing unemployment and uh, business failure uh, we can expect to see that having an impact on uh, the mortgage repayment market
3: yeah absolutely so you've got a lot of factors um, which are aligning you know over the short to medium term in terms of um, you know a, a greater softening of the a greater softening of that the housing market and as you said you know forecasts are that we're unlikely to see significant changes over the next the next couple of years
2: right okay well Jonathan Boymel, uh, uh, thank you. Thank you very much for that. And uh, uh, looking forward to your insights next time. Thank you very much.
3: Absolutely. As always. Thanks, Leon. Be well.
2: So what's happening in the news? Well, global stocks have rallied after biotech group Moderna revealed that its coronavirus vaccine had been found to be highly effective. Moderna Inc.'s experimental vaccine is 94.5% effective in preventing COVID-19 based on interim data from a late-stage trial, the company said on Monday, becoming the second US drug maker to report results that far exceed expectations. The announcement followed a similar breakthrough from Pfizer and BioNTech a week ago. Together with Pfizer Inc.'s vaccine which is also more than 90% effective and pending more safety data and regulatory review, the United States could have two vaccines authorised for emergency use in December with as many as 60 million doses of vaccine available this year. The vaccines, both developed with new technology known as messenger RNA or mRNA, represent powerful tools to fight a pandemic that has infected 54 million people worldwide and killed 1.3 million. Unlike Pfizer's vaccine, Moderna's shot can be stored at normal fridge temperatures, which should make it easier to distribute, a critical factor as COVID-19 cases are soaring, hitting new records in the United States and pushing some European countries back into lockdowns. An ANZ Roy Morgan consumer confidence has just marked the 11th consecutive week of gains in consumer confidence. Building on the previous week's 6.1% gain, current financial conditions rose by 1.6%, future financial conditions lifted by 3.5%, ANZ's confidence in economic conditions improved sharply, with current economic conditions rising 8.2% and future economic conditions gaining 4.8%. But Australian wage growth has fallen to its lowest level on record during the third quarter, slipping to 1.4% year-on-year from the previous record low of 1.8% during the second quarter. Quarterly growth for the wage price index was just 0.1%. Economists had been expecting 0.2%. And Monday's major ASX outage was a timely reminder of the fragility of the infrastructure underpinning some of our most important assets and that upgrades don't always go according to plan. The technical glitch which hit on Monday morning and froze trading for the rest of the day came after what ASX boss Dominic Stevens said was more than a year of testing, including four dress rehearsals. But as every IT executive is acutely aware, no number of dress rehearsals can adequately prepare for the real thing. Some Twitter users assumed the outage was due to a cyber attack or malicious hack, but the truth was much more mundane. It was due to an upgrade of the ASX trading technologies developed by US exchange NASDAQ. Similar upgrades have knocked out services from the likes of Microsoft Outlook, Google and Telstra this year alone. Just a week ago, a massive outage hit Microsoft's 365 suite of products, including Outlook, with a company blaming a botched network driver update. A similar issue plagued Google in September, with customers left unable to access their emails due to a routing server crash. The ASICs compounded its failure to keep the country's primary equity capital market open by failing to ensure a seamless transition to the alternative market, CHIEX. What makes its failure by the ASX even worse is that the market operator appears to have snubbed its nose at the recommendations made by the Australian Securities and Investments Commission following the last major outage in 2016. The ASX comeback from the longest outage in four years did not go smoothly as hoped on Tuesday, and was impeded by delays, eventually resolved, with the ageing chess system of clearing and settlement late in the session. ASIC's intervention invites new questions about the standard of the market's critical infrastructure and ASIC's stewardship, but the ASIC is confident in its position. And the average cyber ransom paid by Australian companies is $1.25 million, according to a global survey conducted by cyber security firm CrowdStrike. The amount is slightly lower than the worldwide average of $1.55 million and is based on responses from 200 Australian IT security professionals. According to the survey, more than two-thirds of Australian companies were targeted by ransomware attacks over the past 12 months, with about one-third of those paying the ransom. And the COVID-19 pandemic has left households and businesses more risk-averse, Reserve Bank Governor Philip Lowe said, fearing that without an acceleration in activity, it could take longer for Australia to recover from its recession. Speaking at the CEDAR annual dinner in Sydney, Dr Lowe said for some time people will be more cautious in their borrowing and spending decisions. Lowe said Australia's economic recovery requires more risk-taking, but he said Australia was on the road to recovery and there was potential to bounce back quickly should the health situation continue to improve. He said the way both governments and central banks set fiscal and monetary policy has shifted with a priority on creating jobs. The one positive of the pandemic is it has accelerated digitisation of Australia's economy, which he says helps boost productivity. And efforts to diversify Australia's trade relationship away from China have received a major boost with the signing of the world's largest free trade agreement between 15 Asia-Pacific nations. Australia is entering into the biggest trade agreement ever, a 15-nation partnership that accounts for nearly a third of global output. Prime Minister Scott Morrison and his trade minister Simon Birmingham signed the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership on Sunday, an agreement that covers around 30% of the world's population. The countries involved are Australia, China, Japan, South Korea, New Zealand and the 10 members of ASEAN, including Indonesia and Vietnam. They'll be part of a deal. Leaders agreed to terms on the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, or RCEP, at the Association of Southeast Asian, or ASEAN, Summit in Bangkok last year. The RCEP pact, which has taken eight years to negotiate, surpasses the Trans-Pacific Partnership in scale after the United States pulled out of that agreement under the Trump administration. And the Morrison government will spend $1 billion over a decade to underwrite the construction of a new vaccine production facility to guarantee the nation continues to have its own supply of flu shots, anti and, if another pandemic occurs, the sovereign capability to look after its own citizens first. Under the deal, CSL subsidiary Sequiris will spend $800 million to build a new state-of-the-art facility at Melbourne's Tullamarine Airport. In return, the federal government will agree to buy, over 10 years, the influenza vaccines it will produce, along with the van- anti to treat the bites from the nation's deadliest spiders and snakes. Should another pandemic like the coronavirus sweep the world in the future, the plant could also be repurposed to develop a vaccine without Australia having to bid for one from overseas. Sequirus currently produces influenza vaccines and anti at a facility in Parkville, Victoria, but the plant is old and unable to cope with the new cell-based technology and production demands. Its current deal with the government expires in 2024-25, and without the new arrangement, the government says the facility would have closed, 1,300 jobs would have been lost, and Australia would have had to source the vaccines and antivenines from abroad. Under the new deal with the federal government, construction of the new plant will begin next year, and it is scheduled to be up and running by 2026. The government will buy the products from 2026 until 2036. Ironically, the government already had this facility when it was known as the Commonwealth Serum Laboratories. In 1994, the Commonwealth facility was privatised as CSL Limited. And Victoria aims to offset the hit to the state's economy from the expected loss of, of up to 61,000 dwellings by building 12,000 public and community housing homes over the next four years in a $5.3 billion spending blitz. Premier Daniel Andrews said the project was the biggest boost to social and affordable housing in Australia's history. The package, which will boost Victoria's social housing supply by 10% in four years, comes as the number of households in the Victorian Housing Register exceeded 48,000 in September. It follows figures last year that showed Victoria was already suffering social housing shortfall of 100,000 dwellings, which was forecast to hit more than 160,000 by 2036 without intervention. The package will generate an estimated $6.7 billion in economic activity and comes at a crucial time for the state, with Melbourne and Sydney most exposed to the population slowdown, stemming from the country's close international and domestic borders. And the Australian mobile services market experienced a decline for the first time in the past decade as the number of SIOs, or services in operations, reduced by 62,000 to 36.2 million connections in the measured six months, the end of June 2020, according to new research from Australian emerging technology analyst firm Telsite. The Telsite Australian Mobile Services Market Study FY 2020 tracks mobile SIO measurement, including handsets, mobile broadband and mobile IoT for business applications. The decline in connections was primarily due to the reduction in prepaid handset SIOs, down 5% from December 2019, which was impacted by lower levels of international visitors and net migration during the period. The study found the mobile IoT category remained the primary driver for the mobile services market, as more businesses adopted IoT solutions as part of their digital strategy. Telsite estimates there were around 4.4 million mobile IoT SIOs at the end of June 2020, up 8% from December 2019. While mobile services will remain an essential service, Telsite believes the market will be under increased pressure in the next two years. Telsite expects a total number of handset SIOs will likely to remain at similar levels during the next 12 to 18 months, with further consolidation of secondary services and limited population growth key factors. And Nine Entertainment's board faces serious questions in the wake of Hugh Marks' resignation after asking investors to back a $2 million long-term bonus for the departing chief executive, two days before he resigned after his workplace relationship became public. Mr Marks will walk away from a potential $5 million payday approved at the company's annual general meeting on Thursday. Mr Marks resigned on Saturday after a special meeting of the Nine board discussed his relationship with a former colleague who reported directly to him. His departure was not mentioned at the Thursday meeting, but came a day after he confirmed to the Nine published Sydney Morning Herald that he was in a relationship with the company's former commercial managing director, Alexi Baker, who departed in October. Mr Marks' confirmation to his own masthead came before the Sunday Telegraph was due to expose the relationship. But Mr Marks, who took the top job at nine in 2015 and stayed at its helm after the broadcast merged with Fairfax Media, could risk millions of dollars in remuneration if is found to have breached his obligations, or if the board finds the awards granted in recent years were not justified. Marks has admitted he did not tell the board about his new relationship with the former senior executive, Alexei Baker, until last week, but insists that any conflicts of interest have been handled appropriately. The 54-year-old said he's leaving to give a successor a clear path to take the well-performing business forward after more than five years at the helm, but conceded the intense gossip about his personal life pushed him to move now. And United Malt is bracing for the impact of the second and third waves of COVID-19 as the pandemic continues to hit global beer and alcohol sales. The international Maltster's full-year earnings slumped as the virus forced pubs and clubs in its key markets to close and big sporting and other entertainment events were cancelled. United Malt's revenue for the year to September 30 fell 2% to $1.3 billion as sales declined on the back of lockdowns. And about two dozen individuals and companies faced potential criminal charges under a plan by the corporate regulators to refer cases to the Commonwealth's Director of Public Prosecutions by the end of the year. Of the 13 Royal Commission referrals made to ASIC to pursue, just two remain under investigation. Five have been thrown out with no further action, while five are civil matters in the courts, while one matter resulted in a $57 million fine against National Australia Bank. ASIC is also pursuing 16 case studies from the Royal Commission, of which six are before the courts. Three are being weighed up for possible criminal investigation, and seven are still under investigation. The regulator has already wrapped up five cases, resulting in civil penalties of more than $20 million. Before the end of December, ASIC is aiming to file about 15 civil cases and transfer about 20 matters to the Commonwealth Director of Public Prosecutions, where two dozen individuals and companies face potential criminal charges. ASIC is also aiming to refer 10 people or firms for administrative action. And Australia's corporate watchdog says some consumers are having to cut back on essentials such as meals because of debt they've racked up from using buy now, pay later schemes, warning one in five consumers of missing payments. ASIC's review into six buy now, pay later players found that some were causing consumers harm. ASIC has stopped short of recommending that buy now, pay later players be regulated in the same way as credit card companies. ASIC's long awaited report into the industry said the total amount of credit extended in the buy now pay later industry has almost doubled in 12 months. The number of buy now pay later transactions increased from 16.8 million in 2017 18 financial year to 32 million in the financial year 2018 19, representing an increase of 90 percent. payment revenues for all now buy now pay later providers that ASIC looked at grew 38 percent to 43 million. Revenue sources varied between different platforms, with late fees making up 20% of Afterpay's revenue in fy 1819, with a balance coming from merchant fees, whereas Zip got most of its revenue from other fees charged to customers. And general insurer Suncor set aside an additional $125 million for coronavirus-related business interruption claims. The move brings Suncor's total pandemic-related business interruption provisions to $195 million, Suncor said it had made the extra provision after examining the economic impact of the second lockdown in Victoria, which saw many businesses forced to shut for more than three months. And the Commonwealth has agreed to a settlement worth over $1.2 billion over its unlawful robo-debt recovery program, which raised automated debts against welfare recipients and which raised millions of dollars in unlawful debts. The robo-debt system has been widely criticised for using computer algorithms to raise debts against hundreds of thousands of welfare recipients, with little or no human oversight. In May, the federal government agreed to pay back $721 million to more than 370,000 people who were wrongly pursued. Prime Minister Scott Morrison later apologised in Parliament for hurt or harm caused by the process. The class action, launched on behalf of people who received notices through the automated debt recovery process, was launched last year. The settlement includes $112 million in compensation to be paid by the Commonwealth, as well as the cancellation of a further $398 million in debts that were wrongly claimed by the government using the automated income averaging methodology, which a federal court last year ruled was illegal. Added to the $720 million in robo-debts that the Commonwealth agreed to repay earlier this year, the total compensation to victims now tops $1.2 billion. It is a condition of the settlement, however, that the Commonwealth does not admit legal liability. And that's it for this week. And next week, I'll be talking to Mervyn Chang about what industries are affected by robotics. And I'll be talking to Callum Pickering from Indeed about the latest wages growth and unemployment figures. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter at TalkingBizBiLZZ, on Facebook and on LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week, and looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week.
0: Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget?